You believe that? Amen. Amen. You can be seated if you're not. Some, most of you in the room are, but I don't know what you are doing at home. So you go ahead and be seated too. Um, if you've got your Bible, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 18. Um, as we were singing those songs, I did not realize how many times the songs today said, there's power in the name of Jesus. And um, that's going to be significant today. And uh, I was excited by that because today I may give you more questions than I give you answers. And uh, I hope that's okay. Um, for some of you, you're going to think I finally got back on track. Um, for others of you, you're going to think now I'm getting off track. And so um, I just, I'm begging you, listen to what I say and put it in the context of everything else that we've been talking about. So uh, we're going to get there in just a second, Acts chapter 18. Um, this is part 16 of Trust the Story. Part 16, we've been using the book by Frank Viola called The Unstilled Story. We still have a couple copies left out on the Welcome Center if you have not picked one up yet and you want one. That helps provide context. So the, the context of the scriptures we're reading, it gives us the background, it gives us the, the culture, it helps us understand the scripture in a way that we cannot understand it without knowing that stuff. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through the, today. Um, this last week, we read pages 111 through 120, Acts chapters 18, verse 23 through 19, 22, I believe it is, or 23, um, is where we left off. And then this coming week, we're going to read the book of 1 Corinthians. And then Frank's going to give us kind of the background of Corinthians. He's already given us some of it. If you've read all of the pages for this week, you already got some of the context for 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you did not know, 1 Corinthians is actually not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Oh, yeah. If you didn't know that, there's a lost letter that we don't have, but he references it in 1 Corinthians. And so it uh, just goes to show us and remind us we need to make sure we know what we're, we're reading. And so I've called this message Cleaning Up Our Act. Cleaning Up Our Act. And the reason I've called it that is because we're going to drill down on baptism and we're going to talk about the lifestyle of the kingdom which maybe we refer to as sanctification. In fact, I believe Pastor Mark just prayed it when he was talking about the maturity that we're going to grow into. And so we're going to talk about cleaning up our act, and that's what I called it. And, and so hopefully you'll see how that goes together as we go through. But I will tell you from the beginning, I am not an expert nor the son of an expert, uh, but I am a learner. I love to read Back in 2012, the first time I went to Israel, uh, a whole new world opened up to me, and I began to understand I had been reading from one well and one well only, and that there are other people in the body of Christ that know more than me and can help me grow in my understanding. Even people that I don't agree with totally can help me understand the context of the Bible, and so one of the things that I've heard throughout the course of my life and study is always write your theology in pencil because someday it's going to change. Now, I know some of you are like, oh my goodness, please understand me. I didn't say write all of your theology in pencil, but there are things that we grow in during our lifetime. N.T. Wright says it this way, I'm sure that 90% of my Bible reading is totally accurate. 
The problem is, I don't know where the 10% is. Understand that? So we know we don't have everything right. The problem is we just don't know what it is we don't have right. And that's why I believe we need each other in the body of Christ. There's a phrase that goes around um, in our American culture where all I need is the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And that's not necessarily untrue. It's just not complete. No one throughout history has had just the Holy Spirit in the Bible. No one. God's Word is a communal book. It was written to a nation of people. That's what we have. His book is communal. When Jesus came to the earth, Jesus, as a Jewish boy, had a community. Jesus didn't just study the scriptures on his own at home in his house. He didn't have a copy of them. He studied it like every other Jewish boy under a rabbi. He wrestled with the scripture. I know, the Son of God had to wrestle with the scripture with someone he ultimately created. That's the paradox of our faith. That's the craziness of it. And so when we say things that sound really spiritual, I just need the Bible, it's true, we, we really need to read the Bible, but the problem for some of us is we don't know how to read the Bible. We don't know how to put ourselves in the Jewish context and understand a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to Jewish people for the most part, and we take it and we just automatically try to apply it to our Western mindset, and that doesn't work. And that's what the untold story is trying to help us understand. When we say context is king, okay, what we're, we're, we've got to understand is there's a cord that runs through Genesis to Revelation. God has been telling the same story forever, okay? His story has not changed. There's a cord that runs through it. But what we tend to do as Westerners, we love to compartmentalize. We love systematic theology. We like to have our boxes. We all do, even if you're not like a type A person. We like things with handles. We like sermons with one point. Just tell me one thing that I need to go do this week. And we don't like messy we don't like the unresolved conflicts. We don't like to wrestle with things. We want you to just tell us the truth. And yet the scripture, even Jesus, never answered a question with an answer. Why? Because that's just not how we do it. We lead you to truth. We don't just tell you truth. I mean, don't you just wish Jesus would have answered Pilate when he said, what is truth? Uh, Jesus, you left us hanging there. It's like we have to come to this understanding. So what we do is we take the Old Testament and we get the context of the Old Testament. We get the Gospels and we get the context of the Gospels and we get the early church and we get the context of the early church and we put them all in their contextual boxes. But where we fail is to run a cord all the way through all of them that ties them all together so we get a fuller understanding of what it is we're reading and interpreting. That's why many people misinterpret the words of Jesus. That's why many people misinterpret the words of Paul, myself included. Because I, I fail to run the cord all the way through. This happened to me just this week because I posted on Facebook something and I got called out by Mark. Not Pastor Mark, but Mark, the guy that took me to Israel. 
And he humbly disagreed, he said. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. You have to tell me why you humbly disagree. You know, you, you can't just tell me you disagree. And the funny thing is, is he didn't disagree with my quote so much as the way I elaborated on my quote. Oops. So I wanted to make sure I clearly you know, made a distinction. Well, that was that guy and that was me. So you're, you're yelling at me, not him. So when you understand church history, this is how church history works. The church is persecuted. We've been reading about it, okay, under the Roman Empire. And then one day, Emperor Constantine gets saved. Praise God. I mean, imagine if our president got saved. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying that's the analogy. Imagine if you had a leader who was oppressive, a dictator, hard, and just, and then one day, your leader got saved. Think of what would happen. The joy that would come into your heart all of a sudden. Only as you follow it out, it didn't go so well. Because then what happened was the state and the church kind of melded together in a way that wasn't good. But praise God for the reformers. Amen? I mean, Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin, man, these guys come along and they call out the church. You know, you're, you're in bed with the state. You're selling indulgences. You're, you're misrepresenting the word. And they point out all these errors. 95 Thesis, remember? Martin Luther tags it on the church at Wittenberg. Boom, 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 boom. And the church gets angry and they start excommunicating these people and they start killing people because they don't want to be called out. But the problem primarily with us as humans is when we correct error, we have a tendency to overcorrect error. And so what we have done is we've developed a systematic theology, not based on maybe the gospel that Paul preached, but the gospel we were comfortable with and, and understood in our Western mindset. You've got to understand, when they came up with this theology, they didn't consult Jewish people. They didn't, they didn't consult the people whose context this word was written in. In fact, Martin Luther hated the Jews. He blamed them for killing Jesus. He didn't want the book of James even to be in the canon of Scripture. Does that mean Martin Luther's a bad guy? No. Does that mean I don't think Martin Luther did great things for the church? No. But he didn't put the scripture in the context that it was written. And so we have developed this systematic theology that makes sense to us, but may not be the gospel of the kingdom. And so when we come to the gospel of the kingdom and we begin to look at it, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've talked about it, that were found in the 1940s and then distributed around the world and Jewish, Jewish scholars started to come to the table and began to help us understand the scripture from beginning to end. And we realized, wow, we were misinterpreting what Paul was saying. Wow, we were misinterpreting what Jesus was saying. Wow, and it doesn't change our theology in major ways, just in subtle ways that make major changes to how we live out our theology. Does that make sense? And so we're not doing away with the cross. We're not doing away with the resurrection. We're not doing away with forgiveness of sins, but we are going to start correcting some of those things. And what we're going to do is we're going to start here in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, and we're just going to read it. And then I'm going to make some comments on it, and eventually I'm going to close. 
So that's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 18, if you've got your Bible, you can, or I put it up on the screen. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there, traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so there's a map on Slack. There's a map on our website. You can go. Now, Paul is beginning his third missionary journey, third apostolic journey, whatever you want to call it, third trip. Paul is on his third one. The map will show you where all these places are and where he traveled to. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, meaning he would have been a Greek also, or at least educated in Greek or in Hellenism, okay? He comes to Ephesus. Look at this. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Okay, this is very important. He was learned He knew the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So far, so good, right? I mean, we're like, okay, I like this guy. He spoke with great fervor. Still liking it. Taught about Jesus accurately. (laughs) Loving it. I mean, praise God. Though... Ah, see, you know how those words in Scripture just ruin everything. Though he only knew the baptism of John, hmm. he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, okay? I don't know if you've ever been like me, but I've often wondered what this, I've been wanting to know this for weeks. I've been studying this. I've been waiting for today. I'm so excited for today, even though I don't have all the answers to give you. I have some, and uh, we'll come up with the rest later. I don't know what the difference is between the baptism of John and the baptism in the name of Jesus. Because I'm going to show you, they look really similar. Okay? But he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila, please don't miss that. Anytime that the lady's name is written first in the scripture, it's not by accident. There's a purpose. I believe, you can disagree with me if you'd like, but I'm not alone in my boat Priscilla was the main teacher in this couple. She was the more educated, more knowledgeable one in the scripture. So Priscilla comes first as they write about them, Priscilla and Aquila. I also think she wrote the book of Hebrews, but we'll get to that later. So anyway, they invited him to their home. They didn't call him out on Facebook. They didn't come up with a great meme. They didn't start a website to talk about this false teacher named Apollos. They invited him into their home. The sooner we get this through our heads, the better off we're going to be as a church. Change is only going to take place in the hearts of people when we bring them to the table and we listen, we seek to understand, and then we respond. Too far, far, far too many of the church today are responding before we've ever understood. Ever. I teach people in premarital counseling all the time this thing called being assertive. You have to learn to ask in a relationship for what you want. You cannot expect your spouse to read your mind. You can't. It's not fair. And you can't just tell them once either sometimes. You have to sometimes ask for what you want. But you have to do it in a positive manner. You can't do it in a condemning manner. You can't do it in a you never do this, you never do that. You always. If you do that, you might as well stop. Okay, you have to learn to own what you need. I need this. This is what I need. And then your partner has to choose whether or not they're going to meet that need for you. 
Okay, so that's assertiveness. But then there's something called active listening. Active listening is where you literally repeat back what you just heard. And we th- I, inevitably people are like, this is so weird. Why do we have to repeat back what I just heard? Because you will come to places in your life where you will start responding before you've heard what was said. Either you will judge them based on their past or you will judge them based on your thoughts. And how many of you know men and women think differently? Okay, so just because you heard it doesn't mean you heard it. And so active listening tries to clarify what's being communicated. And we don't get this in the church. And we sometimes start responding to people and labeling people before we've ever even understood what they were saying in the first place. So how do you solve that problem? You come to the table. You have a conversation. It doesn't have to be a literal table. But there's this figurative message that you come to the table to work it out. And that's what they did. They bring him. And Apollos apparently is humble and teachable. And he accepts the message. They explain the way of God more adequately. Then he wants to go to Acacia. Okay? He wants to go over toward Corinth. And I don't know what you're thinking, but this guy who just learned the way, should we really send him off to help other churches? Apparently, because they not only think it's a good idea, but they write a letter saying he should go. And then when he arrives, he's a great help to those who by grace had believed. He vigorously refutes his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. I love this guy. I don't know a lot about him because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot. The writings of Josephus tell us a little bit more. But this guy, I love him. Okay, So then we go to Acts chapter 19. Chapters added by us, not by the writers of the original letter. Luke didn't write chapter 19, okay? Just so you're aware. We did. Putting handles on it because we want to understand it in our Western lists, okay? So while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Some disciples, okay. And he asks them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why would he ask them if they received the Holy Spirit? They're disciples. Ah, great great question. They answered, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Well, how how are you disciples? I'm confused. You can't be a disciple. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. So what baptism did you receive? See how Paul knows what questions to ask? We are terrible at asking questions. We like to give answers. Start asking questions, and then you know what answers to provide. Amen. That's good preaching. Okay. John's baptism. There it is again. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Wasn't Jesus' a baptism of repentance too? It's in the Bible. I'm going to show you in a second. Um, He told them, the people, to believe. This is John. In the one coming after him. That's a great phrase to remember. John uses that phrase all the time. Believe in the one coming after me. One coming after me. Not the Messiah. The one coming after me. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they all spoke in tongues and prophecies. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, about 12 men in all. Remember Luke Luke was writing a detailed account of what happened. Luke is a doctor. What's this about 12? How many were there? 
See, if you step back for a minute and say, what is Luke trying to communicate in this, in this passage? What's he trying to say to me? We think that the gospel writers are just writing all the facts so we can make up our mind about who Jesus is. That's not what they're doing. These things have been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, living God. They are not lying. They are not twisting the truth. But they are presenting the facts to you in a way to point to Jesus as the Messiah. I know. We think journalism is all about, you know, just report the facts and let me make up my mind. Well, they're not journalists. They're presenting the facts, and they're totally true, and they're totally inspired by God. But when Luke says, disciples, who else had disciples? John had disciples. These disciples now start following Jesus. These disciples have been immersed in the name of Jesus. These disciples receive the gift of the Spirit. They speak in tongues and prophesy, and oh, by the way, there's about 12 of them. Luke is saying, huh, John or Paul's ministry is starting to look a whole lot like Jesus' ministry. He's bringing people from being John's disciples to being his own disciples. He's immersing them in the name of Jesus, not in John's baptism. He's baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. He's, wow. Huh, why is Luke doing that? I, you know, I, let's go back to John the Baptist and let's see why Luke might be doing that. Luke chapter 1, verse 8, 80. This is John the Baptist. He was born, he's the son of a priest, but he's the son of a righteous priest. And some of us might read that and be like, well, duh. But the Sadducees, if you listen to the podcast that talks about the different groups of people alive during Jesus' time, the Sadducees were in charge of the temple. The Sadducees were the priests. The Sadducees were not righteous. They were very political. They were stealing from the people. They were offering bad sacrifices. Remember when Jesus overturned the money changers' tables, messed up the temple? That's the Sadducees. Okay? It's not the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's the Sadducees. But Zechariah is a priest, but he is not a Sadducee. Okay? Because he is a righteous priest. Now, some people believe he's an Essene. Remember who the Essenes were? The Essenes were the people that were rejecting Hellenism, rejecting the ways of the world, because Hellenism was the world system. And the the Essenes are like, we're going to go live in the desert, and we're going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. We're going to live out here. We're going to reject the world. Now, you've got to understand when they reject the world, they're not just rejecting the immorality of the world, because Hellenism just doesn't bring immorality and sin. It brings running water. Hellenism brings air conditioning. Hellenism brings modern conveniences. Are modern conveniences bad? No. I love running water. I love air conditioning. I love modern conveniences. I love electronics. It's not bad. But if you were in a scene, you would be like, I don't want any of that stuff. I'm going out in the desert to live way over there. I'm not touching any of this. Now, John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness What's he doing out there? Is he being taught by the Essenes? Because a lot of his teaching, I don't think John was, was an Essene, but I think he was influenced by the Essenes. His washing, the ritual purity, he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly. As an Essene, he would not have appeared publicly. As an Essene, he would not have baptized non-Essenes. But He's definitely been influenced by these people. And then, all of a sudden, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist comes in his Elijah costume. Mm -hmm. The, The only other person in Scripture who wore camel hair 
was Elijah. Okay, and the camel hair, by the way, is not worn with the, the soft side, as if a camel had a soft side, next to your skin. It's worn with the irritating side next to your skin. Because as a prophet, you want to maintain that irritation. You want to be reminded And John the Baptist comes baptizing people, and the three locations where he baptizes people are all significant places where Elijah baptized people. This is so important for us to know. John knew he was Elijah. He knew he was the prophet. He knew he was preparing the way for the one who is to come. He knew that. Okay, so the word of God comes to him and he goes to all the country of the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Every valley filled in, every mountain made low, the crooked roads become straight, the rough, rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. This baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the exact phrase that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 when he preaches that they be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What makes these baptisms different? It's not just one's being administered by John and one's being administered by Jesus. It's the theology. So where do their theologies differ? This is where it's important because we can be learned in the scriptures. We can have a baptism of repentance, telling people to turn from sin, but not be baptizing people in the name of Jesus, more baptizing them in the name of John, just like Apollos, just like these disciples in Acts chapter 19. It's important that we understand this. When the, when the word repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that word forgiveness is a tricky word. It's a Greek word, but what John is saying is in Hebrew. So how do we know what word John is saying? Because there's a book called the Septuagint. If you've never heard of the Septuagint, it's the Hebrew scripture translated into Greek. Okay? It was in the time of Jesus. So they take the Hebrew scripture, they translate it to, to Greek. So now we understand that the word that John is using, or that's written here, could refer to liberty, jubilee or release for the forgiveness of sins, for the liberty of sins, for the release of sins, for the jubilee of sins. So we have to understand this baptism of repentance that John is preaching. The first thing you need to know is the word baptism is not a word that they're using. The word that they're using is the word immersion. Immersion. This is not a slam on people that have not been baptized by immersion. In fact, the Jews themselves participate in ritual immersion often. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But what you need to understand about immersion is if you do not have water for immersion, the oral traditions of Jewish law allowed for you to pour water on people. Let me fall off my stool. Okay, if you cannot immerse someone, you can still immerse them by pouring water on their head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can you believe that that was actually an option? I mean, what do you do if there's not living water around? By the way, you had to be immersed in living water. Living water means you don't carry the water and put it in the tub. It means it's free-flowing. It means that when the Essene community out in the desert, man, you need to watch this video, and like the, the, they, they dug 
hundreds of yards of of cistern so that the rainwater would collect in their ritual pools so they could be immersed in living water. Because the water couldn't be just water they carried in. It had to flow, okay? So you had to be immersed in living water. And so for John and for the Jew, the water doesn't make you clean. John says, repent first. And then the water becomes symbolic of the purity that already comes. You repent, and by faith, God purifies your inside. You are immersed as a consecration to your body, to the Lord. That's what's taking place when they immerse. How do we know this? Because Jews have been doing it for centuries. This is in the law. Because there's always a time you become impure. You, you touch a dead body, you're impure. A woman's menstrual cycle, impure. You have to understand this isn't sin. Impurity does not always equal sin. It just means impurity. It means that you can no longer take place in the temple sacrifice. It means you can no longer eat of the sacrifice. It's a period of time that has to lapse before you are now clean. And then after that period elapses, you go into the waters, the living waters, and you immerse. You clean, you purify yourself and rededicate yourself to God. Okay, you're already clean. You get in the water as an act of giving yourself back to God. It happens all the time. So the priests would dedicate them or would ritually bathe themselves up to three times a day. Okay, so when Jesus comes and says, hey, immerse my followers, they're not like, what's that mean? They already have the context of what immerse means. So let's come back to John. But before we go back to John, let's look at Hebrews chapter 6 for a second. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Oh, repentance from dead works, repentance from sin. We don't have to do that again. Faith in God that brings righteousness. Instruction about cleansing rites. Some of your Bibles will translate instructions about baptisms. And we'll point to, oh, that's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of, of water. No, 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 no. Cleansing rites is the immersions. And there's stuff here we don't know and I don't have time to unpack for you today. But that's an elementary teaching apparently. The laying on of hands. Remember what Paul does for these believers the moment they're baptized into the name of Jesus? He lays hands on them. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then the resurrection of the dead. We've already talked about how important that is. And eternal judgment. And all of these things, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is elementary stuff. And I know for some of us, we're like, Paul said, never preach another gospel other than the gospel that you've heard. And Pastor Tom, you told us to write our doctrine in pencil. That's because I'm not sure we even know the gospel that Paul preached. Or that Jesus preached. We're not there yet, so I can't get ahead of myself. Luke chapter 3. John says to the crowds, Who warned you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the coming wrath? Because the crowds are coming out to be immersed by John. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Why was the Jew, why was the Jew justified before God? Not because they kept the law. That did not justify them. They were justified before God because they were children of Abraham. They kept the law as a sign of the covenant with God. 
The Jew does not believe they're right with God because they keep the law. They keep the law because they are right with God. It's by faith. So that's what he's pointing at here. He's like, you know, you got to repent. He's preaching kind of a new gospel, if you will. you got to repent. If you don't repent, you're, the tree's going to get cut down. It's going to be thrown into the fire. And the people are like, I mean, the axe is already at the root of the trees. John's like, fiery gospel. You're going to, yeah. And the people are like, what do we do? So John says this. If you have two shirts, share with the person who has none. If you have food, do the same. Well, Pastor Tom, that sounds a lot like that socialist gospel that is being bandied around. It does, doesn't it? Can I tell you something? Just because you can argue that something looks like Marxism or looks like socialism or looks like something bad doesn't mean it is. We've got to make sure we understand what's being communicated because there is a take-care-of-the-poor aspect, not only to John's ministry, but Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry. We've got to make sure we run the cord through the Scripture before we're quick. And then the tax collectors come, and he says, what, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to. You've got to understand, tax collectors are extortionists. They are actually, here's the taxes you owe me. Okay, I'm adding my own to that, and now you're going to pay me this much. They could do whatever they want, and they're Jews. They're extorting their own people. These are, and Jesus is eating with them. What are, stop condoning that behavior, Jesus. John himself doesn't understand this as he's about to die. He says, that John's pretty clear, you got to stop doing, you got to repent. You can't just get in my water and think you're going to be okay because you're children of Abraham. You got to repent first. Whew. Then the soldiers. Now, please understand, these are not like, we have an idea of soldiers. American soldiers are not like Roman soldiers. Not at all. American soldiers are good people. <laughs> Roman soldiers, not so much. This is a corrupt system and corrupt soldiers they could just come and do whatever they wanted with you they could rape your wife and there's nothing you can do about it does that sound good now don't get me wrong I know that there have been American soldiers that have soiled the name of our nation overseas and have done things atrocities that should never have been done but our overall view of the American soldier is not like the Roman soldier. So we've got to make sure that when these soldiers are coming out to be baptized, Jesus or John is clear and he's saying to them, you, you can't extort money. You can't do these things. You've got to repent. You've got to make sure that you, are, you treat people fairly. You treat people right. What John is teaching these people is that you have to love God, you have to love your neighbor. You have to act in righteousness towards God, and you also have to act in justice towards others. This is the same gospel that Jesus preaches. But what makes John's gospel different? Let's, go, let's look at I baptize you with water, he says, but the one who comes after me, he is more powerful than me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we look at that, and as Pentecostals, we're all like, passion, boldness, yeah, fire of Pentecost. That's not what John is saying, okay? I'm not saying that that's not right, but John is talking about judgment. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. Where is the most widely known threshing floor in all of the land of Israel? Well, that would be the threshing floor that David bought back in the book of 1 Samuel, if you go back and read about it. And what did David build on the threshing floor that he purchased where he sacrificed to stop a plague? He built the temple. He built the temple. This is, John is saying, the the Messiah is going to come. He's going to do away with the temple. He's going to do away with your terrible sacrifices. See, he's preaching a fiery judgment of God that's coming on the people. And everything else is the same. But Jesus doesn't come preaching this. Does Jesus say that there's no judgment? No, he, he does. He says there's a judgment coming. But the message for right now isn't the judgment that's coming. The message for right now is God's mercy. So when John says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? He's referencing Daniel. Because when Daniel talks about the one who is to come, the one who is to come is going to bring judgment. The one who's going to come is going to redeem Israel. He's going to take away all of the sins of the world, and he's going to redeem Israel by punishing her enemies. But Jesus doesn't come preaching that gospel. He comes preaching a love your enemies gospel. He comes eating with tax collectors and sinners. He comes doing things that John doesn't understand. It doesn't fit John's paradigm. Because if you're going to repent, then you have to also want God's judgment on people. And Jesus is like, John, that's the only thing you've got wrong. And you're going to die in prison. That's what he says to him. You'll have to go back and read it for yourself. So how does this matter to us? Because when you look at the Apostle Paul in these next verses, Paul enters the synagogue and he smoked boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. Do you know when the, when the, when the, when the, the gospel writers talk about what Jesus preached, he didn't preach salvation through his name. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean there's not salvation in the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't die on a cross for our sins. It means the gospel of the kingdom might not be what we've made it out to be. And some of us are preaching a baptism of repentance. Some of us are preaching a baptism of dead works. Some of us are preaching that when you, 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 you repent of your sin, you change your life, you even apply Jesus to it. But we have this wrath message that John taught and preached that fire, fire, judgment, judgment. And yes, there's a judgment coming. Jesus taught about it. He taught about hell. He taught about the eternal fires. But we have to make sure we separate the gospel that John preached and the gospel that Jesus preached. Because Paul taught the gospel of the kingdom. And I want you to look, skip down. I want you to look at what happens. The whole world begins to hear about this. And God does extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured. And the evil spirits left them. When you begin to understand the gospel of the kingdom, when you begin to live in allegiance to the gospel of the kingdom, when you begin to surrender your life totally to the gospel of the kingdom, you don't have to pray over handkerchiefs and have them go out and be laid on people. They were taking Paul's sweat rags. Paul was working as a tent maker. They were taking his apron. They were taking the rag that he had around his head and they were using it. Because if you keep going in, the, in, in Acts chapter 19 and you look at the very next passage, 
What happens is this group of people, they, they go in and they're like, we're going to cast out these demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not because they had surrendered to the gospel of the kingdom, not because they had pledged total allegiance to Jesus, but because, you know, the name of Jesus sounds like a tagline that we could just put on the end of our prayers so that we could get things that we need. And that's a dangerous gospel to preach. And what happens is they run from the house naked and beat up by the demon because they say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but we don't know you. There is a difference between these baptisms, between these gospels of the kingdom. Go back and look at the words that Jesus taught. He taught the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom then, Pastor Tom? Well, I'm glad you asked. The gospel of the kingdom is bigger than just Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. That's a part of the gospel of the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. But again, as Americans, we make it all about Jesus died just for you. If you were the only one, he would have still died. That's not false, but that's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is God is bringing a kingdom to this world, and Jesus says it's already broken out. John said, by your repentance, you will hurry up the kingdom. See, John believed judgment was coming. And if we get enough people to repent, it's going to speed the coming. And the kingdom is going to come. And the kingdom is going to come and, and it's going to defeat our enemies. But Jesus comes teaching the kingdom's already here. And it's broken out. And signs and wonders begin to take place because of the finger of God. Because of the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus taught. But this gospel of the kingdom isn't just about signs and wonders. It isn't just about the, 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 the forgiveness of our sins. The gospel of the kingdom is also about fighting for the poor. Fighting for the widow. Fighting for the foreigner. Making sure that we share with those who are in need. In fact, as you read the end of Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul begins to develop. Everywhere he goes, he takes offerings for the poor. Everywhere. Because this is weaved throughout the gospel message. This is the gospel of the kingdom. But don't forget, the gospel of the kingdom is also about allegiance to the king. It's about obedience. And some people say that Paul preaches a gospel of grace. That means you can live however you want. It doesn't matter because you're just in the gospel of the kingdom now. Because there's grace. You need to read Romans chapter 6. Because Paul comes along and says, does this mean we can live however we want? By no means. Because you've been buried with Christ in your baptism and now you're raised to a new life. Please don't misunderstand. The righteousness that you and I have through Christ comes because we put faith in God. But there is now an allegiance to the king that has to supersede our allegiance to every other thing. We need to wrestle with this. There's a, the word gospel of the kingdom is a word used by the Greek Empire. It's a political term. It's the gospel of the Roman Empire. It's a political term. We are taking the gospel of the kingdom and trying to apply it to Republicans, Democrats, Marxists, Socialists, Capitalists. Those are all kingdoms of the world. All of them. All of them. The gospel of the kingdom is totally different. And Jesus calls you and I into the gospel of the kingdom. 
And when Paul comes, not only does he come and and teach them the truth about who Jesus is and say, get immersed in the name of Jesus, but he also lays hands on them and says, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. We got to make sure that our gospel looks more like the gospel of Jesus and less like the gospel of John. They look really, really similar. And they both are backed up by Scripture. But John wasn't 100% right. Isn't that weird? Does that mean John went to hell? By no means. Jesus said there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But the kingdom is now here. It's different. Walk in the gospel of the kingdom. Study the words of Jesus. Make sure you apply it to your life. And by all means, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been promised. And speak in tongues, prophesy, let the Spirit flow through your life in fuller ways. Because out there, everywhere you go, deposit the kingdom. You are now a carrier of the kingdom. Does that mean everywhere we go, there will be miracles? No. But there'll be more miracles. There should be. Does that mean that I only have to obey when I feel like it? No, because I've pledged my allegiance to the king. And I obey no matter what. There's so much more we could unpack if we go through Romans chapter 6 and we talk through Romans chapter 6 and we could look through the ways that Jesus taught the, the gospel of the kingdom that would be proclaimed, we just don't have time to do it today. Maybe someday I'll do a Facebook Live video and I'll just finish one of these sermons. There's always way more that I want to share than I have time to share. I want you to go back today, if you can, and read Acts chapter 18 and 19. Read Romans chapter 6. Read Luke chapter 3 and look at John the Baptist. Read the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus taught in the book of Matthew. Begin to put these together and make sure, make sure that we're living in the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus taught and not the gospel that John preached. Both are a repentance of sin. Both are about righteousness, God's righteousness. Both are about faith in God. Both are about an immersion. But allegiance to the kingdom calls for treating our enemies differently than John saw it. That's what sets Jesus apart from every other rabbi who ever lived. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. And if you do this, you will be like your Father in heaven. Because he is kind to those who are unkind. And he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Because it's the kindness of God that will lead people to repentance. Be careful what gospel you give your allegiance to. So, Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. God, you have shown us from beginning to end that you have a plan for this world that we live in. God, you have brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love. You did it by, by tearing down every wall of separation 
the blood of Jesus Christ tore the, the, the veil of the temple in two to give us access to you. His resurrection provided the power, the newness of life that we need to walk out our allegiance to your kingdom. Holy Spirit, I pray, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear this message that Paul preaches to this church. God, to the point that our allegiance to the gospel of the kingdom literally begins to cause miracles to happen outside of our sweat glands. God, that we don't have to just tag your name onto the end of what we want to teach or what we want to preach. But God, the, the gospel of the kingdom takes such root in our lives that it affects every relationship, that it affects every situation, that it affects every part of our lives. God, that we would place no allegiance, no allegiance to our spouse, no allegiance to any nation on the world, no allegiance to any group other than the name of Jesus. You deserve our total allegiance. God, make us to see how to be carriers of this kingdom, how to walk this out and live this out in our day-to-day -day lives. Holy Spirit, show us how to put it into practice. Break off the chains, the chains that keep us in bondage, I pray. God, the chains on our minds, the chains on our physical bodies. God, that everywhere we go, God, we would see the injustices of our world and we would bring your kingdom to that situation. God, that when we see sickness and disease, we would see the injustice of that and begin to release your kingdom. God, when we would see oppression, when we would see abuse, God, when we would see anything where, there, where, there are, where there's poverty, God, that we wouldn't just say, oh, go blessed and be warm but God, that we would give of ourselves in whatever way we can to release the kingdom into that situation. God, that we would be carriers of the kingdom. God, that most importantly, we would be carriers of the kingdom in the way that we treat people, especially in the way that we treat our enemies. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for those today that have never received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that gift of the Holy Spirit, even without us being able to lay hands on them today. Father, put a desire in every one of our hearts, not just to be filled once, but to be continuously filled with your spirit, walking in your power, sitting at the table with brothers and sisters, God listening, depositing the kingdom, God living out this gospel. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Give us grace to live it out, I pray in Jesus' name. And now, Father, over your body today, I pray, one final blessing. God, I ask that you would bless them and keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you'd lift your countenance upon them, and that you would give them peace. Be gracious to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.